Well, welcome to week four in the final part of our series called Build. The relationships you build, the relationships that we build, they matter. And so maybe this is your first time here at West Hill. Maybe you've missed a few weeks. We're going to take just a few moments as we do each week and catch you all up on where we've been and what we've been studying together over the last couple of weeks. In part one of the series, we talked about this idea of building relationships. That, that we build the relationship, we share the story, and we bring the people. And this entire series is designed to help our church become united and to become aligned together, to focus us and to focus all of our efforts around the mission of God in our world, and specifically in our community and in your circle of influence. That we want our hearts as a group of followers, as believers, to be aligned with his heart. And that's the goal and that's the focus that Jesus gave us an example. We are called to reflect him. We are called to imitate him. And so we observe his example in the scriptures and we live that out in our world. And we see that example all throughout the gospels about how Jesus modeled for us how we are supposed to interact with people who need hope. We looked specifically at John 4, and we saw that Jesus built relationships with the woman at the well. He built a relationship with her. He got to know her. He asked her questions, and then he shared what she truly needed, which was the living water, which, as we know, is the gospel. He offered her forgiveness, and then he told her to bring others to come and see and know and experience, and she did, and many believed. In part two, we asked the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel, and what does it mean? And, and it's simply this. It's, it's the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection to bring us salvation. But why do we need salvation? Why is that so important? Well, it's because of the fall of man. The fall of man and sin is why we need salvation. And so we looked at the full story of the gospel through the gospel acronym that I've used for so many years. Greg Steer developed it so many years ago. But it's, the gospel acronym starts off with each letter of, of the gospel that God created us to be with him, to be in a relationship with him. But sin, our sin, separates us from God. We see that in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God and sin. And then we see from, from Genesis 4 through Malachi, we see this process of, of them trying to remove sin by, by offering sacrifices and, and by good deeds. And as we know, that can't be done. And so paying the price for sin, Jesus died and he rose again. And everyone who trusts in him alone can have eternal life. And life with Jesus starts at salvation and it never ends. That the foundation for all we do will always be the gospel. That is what we've been singing about this morning. This gospel foundation that we will build our lives on and that we will continue to build this church on is the gospel. Last week, we saw that how we walk matters. That if we're building our lives on the foundation of the gospel, we must give attention to how we walk. And so we should walk in wisdom. That we have to pursue it, and we have to walk in it with purpose. 
If we want to be on mission, we have to walk in wisdom. And so that brings us now to the final part of our study on building relationships that matter. Last Sunday's sermon, it focused on the behavioral principle that we see here in Colossians 4, and today we're going to focus on the conversational principle, how we should use our words. We live in a strange world. We all know that. We, we live in this world. We know that it's, it's strange. It's a little bit awkward. It's a little bit weird. There's so many things going on right now in our culture, uh, from politics to spirituality to relational issues. And if we think back to the last few weeks as we've been studying this idea of building relationships, we're reminded that everyone is born separated from God and with a sinful nature. That we all carry this sinful nature around with us and this sin nature that is born without God causes people to think selfishly and it causes people to even think inwardly. People tend to believe that they are the final say for what the world should look like. Our personal standards and your personal standards become the standards for our world. Now this is nothing new, but it doesn't make it easy to be a, a Christian or to be a light in this world when everything around us seems to be so vastly different from how we as Christians are called to live. Now we see this play out in Romans chapter one and, and when we look around this, when we look around, this chapter describes what we see and I'm gonna put it on the screen, but Paul shares with the people in Rome what's at the heart of all of the issues that they are experiencing. And just as I read this to you, as you see this on the screen, I just want you to think, does any of this sound familiar? He says in verse 21 of Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile or vain in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now this isn't, I didn't read that this morning or draw your attention to that text to discourage you, but I wanted to call it out because that's what we're dealing with and I wanna make sure that we're on the same page about this calling that we have all been given to walk in wisdom. It's what makes today's topic and this study that we're gonna have this morning so important that we cannot expect people who are not Christ followers, who are not believers, who we would, we would say are not Christians, we cannot expect them to act like one. And let's not even talk about the fact that we as Christ followers don't always act like them either. 
This is what makes evangelism and this is what makes relationships with people who are far from God so hard at times. Because we live in this world as, as people who read our Bibles and we go to Bible studies and we're in small groups and, and, and we're, doing, we're doing the church thing, right? We're coming to church where we're learning and we're growing and we often expect those who are outside of our belief system to live like us. Forgetting one simple fact, they can't. People who don't know Jesus cannot live like people who know Jesus. Yes, there can be some characteristics. They can be honest and kind and all of those things, but they don't have the same perspective. They don't have the same filter that we do. And we have to remember, like Paul, that anyone who is saved has surrendered themselves to Christ, and we live differently, not because of a set of rules, but because of him and because we are in him. And so it can be frustrating to constantly see uh, the unsaved or the ungodly culture in what they are doing. And it should bother us, by the way. The things we see going on around us should be of deep concern to us. But Romans 1 simply says that none of it should surprise us. We just have to remember what world we're living in. That we can feel defeated, we can even feel angry about the sin and the darkness that we see all around us and those feelings can and they should drive us to want to make a difference. And just so I'm not misunderstood this morning, I believe Christians should get involved in things like politics and appropriate activism. Things like defending the unborn is not a political issue. Getting onto school boards to protect our kids in schools or standing up for truth in our culture or aiding those in poverty are things we should be involved in as Christ followers. So even while we live for Jesus and we still try to affect change, we absolutely must think differently about how we speak to the people around us who don't know Christ. So we can do both of those things. We can stand for truth. We can be bold about that stand, but we can also do it with kindness and with grace. So find Colossians 4 in your New Testament. If you're not already there, Paul is finishing his letter to the church in Colossae here with a challenge. Here in chapter 4, he said a lot of really important things in the first three chapters. And and he's wrapping up this, this, this letter to this church, to this people, with a challenge to proclaim the gospel. And so in verses two through five, he makes it clear that it's a work of prayer and walking in wisdom so we can make the most use of the time that God has given us. That when it comes to the gospel we will see an invaluable principle this morning that will help us be more effective as we walk with those who are far from God, how we use our words. So let's read our text together this morning. We're just gonna start with verse one and read through verse six. Paul says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, if you went into work tomorrow morning and you asked the unsaved person standing next to you, based on your experience, if you're asking this question, based on your experience, what would you say Christians, or would you say that Christians are known for being gracious people? If you asked your coworkers that question, what kind of answer do you think they would give you in response? What if you asked yourself that honest question? What if you just factored in what you simply know of the Christians in your circle? Are we known for being gracious? Now, this can be a touchy subject because there are so many opinions in the room on what we should and what we shouldn't say. So I'm not saying that we can't be bold about our convictions. As I mentioned earlier, we, we can be bold about political things and cultural and biblical things. It's not unkind to stand for things. But we can still be kind in how we communicate our position about those things. And, and because of, of our reputation sometimes about those things, we're not necessarily viewed as the most gracious group of people on the planet. And when we are unkind, it can leave a, it can leave a negative taste in the mouths of the people that, that hopefully we want to reach with the good news of the gospel. We are called to boldly and confidently speak the truth, but we're called to do that in love. So Paul says that our speech, that our words should always be gracious. Gracious speech, it maximizes our influence when it comes to the gospel. I want you to think back to the last conversation that we, we had about non-spiritual, or that you had about a non-spiritual topic with an unsaved family member. What impression was left with them? How would they say that conversation went with you? Are they now more excited to talk to you about a faith-related topic than they were before based on what they know of you or what they've seen of you? Or maybe a question that they have that they wish that they could ask a Christian, someone who knows a little bit about it, or maybe they're just dreading the day that that issue comes up because they just they're just dreading hearing how you're going to respond to those things. Proverbs 12, 18 says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. In the context of, of gospel efforts, which do your words accomplish? Do they accomplish healing or do they accomplish injury? in those conversations. I, I think that's something we should all consider. I think that's a question we should all answer in our mind before we open our mouths about things that could be a little bit hot button in our world. Now, there are several things to consider when we think about conversations that we have with people who, who, would, who would not be in the category of Christian who is the person and, and what is their backgrounds? What are some barriers that you know already exist in this conversation? Do they come from an abusive home or is their past full of some type of trauma or maybe they grew up in a cult system or maybe they were exposed to the Christian faith through a legalistic lens? That's, that's my generation's story. 
is a lot of people who are my age refuse to give the gospel an opportunity in their minds and their hearts because of a legalistic viewpoint that they saw all around them. Now, the truth that they need to hear doesn't change. That truth doesn't change based on their background or their experiences, but it should inform us on how we proceed with wisdom in the gospel conversations that we have with them. I believe we should get to know the people that we're sharing hope with. Most likely, they won't decide to follow Jesus the first time they're confronted with the gospel anyways, especially in this culture with all the questions that people have that they're looking for answers to. And most likely, this is a person that you have an ongoing relationship with anyways. So ask good questions. What are your thoughts on life after death? What are your thoughts on some of the cultural things that we see happening right now in our world? What were you taught about heaven and and what happens when you die? And why do you feel that way about that specific situation or that specific person? And then, as a Christ follower, you pray for wisdom. You become a, a better listener. You be interested in them. And then you carefully and graciously share your thoughts based on what the scriptures teach us. You see, as Christ followers, we must be careful to not just share our thoughts and feelings as if our thoughts and feelings are the only thoughts and feelings in the room. I believe that we should funnel those thoughts and feelings through the filter of scripture and anything that we communicate that we should do it graciously. Because gracious speech maximizes gospel influence. Peter gives us this challenge in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as the Lord, but always be prepared to give an answer for, to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. So Peter makes it clear that we are expected to be able to defend our faith but we're to do it with gentleness and respect. I hope everyone in the room has that verse memorized, 1 Peter three fifteen. If you don't, that's a wonderful reminder to have written on your heart as you walk in this world with people who don't know the Savior. So Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I love that phrase, let your speech always be gracious. He doesn't leave room for, for a bad day in there. He says, let your speech always be gracious. But when it comes to gracious salt, Jesus uses it to give us another principle in Matthew 5. So I want you to turn there real quick. Hold your place in Colossians 4, but turn to Matthew 5. We're going to spend just a little bit of time here today because I believe it's going to help us as we continue this this conversation. And I believe it's going to help us see and influence what role we play in these conversations. So Matthew 5, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Some of the most important words that you're going to read in the scriptures are found right here in Matthew 5. And so starting in verse 13, he says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So what does Jesus mean when he says that you're the salt of the earth? Well, in Bible times, salt was, was used as a preservative or as a seasoning. It was also used in connection with sacrifices that we see in, in the book of Exodus and, and in Leviticus. 
which was a significant illustration for these people who were listening to Jesus speak on the mountain. The church that Paul is writing to would have understood what Paul was referring to here in his writing to them. They would understand this phrase being seasoned with salt based on this Old Testament writing and what Jesus has spoken in Matthew 5. Now, as you all probably know, this is not bags of sand and granules that we're used to buying at Bueller's today. These were, I mean, unless you're a farmer and you got cattle and there's big blocks of salt, that's the closest thing that you have as a reference point for what these looked like. These were huge chunks of salt and they would be used to butcher and prepare meat. They, they didn't have refrigerators and, and coolers like we do today, so salt was used to save leftover food and, and meat. If it wasn't preserved properly, bacteria would ruin it. What they didn't use or eat right away, they would keep for another time. Salt was valuable, and salt had specific purposes. So Jesus is teaching his disciples here to be be salty, to influence their world for good by living a righteous life and proclaiming the gospel by setting a godly example for the watching world. And we are called to be salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. The wickedness of the world has a way of affecting how we interact with it, doesn't it? We feel this. We know this. It can happen so fast. And and many of you have seen this firsthand, even in your own heart and life or, or someone that you know and love. And don't think for a second that this was an accident. It's an intentional enemy infiltration into the hearts of people. I mean, think of all the corruption that we see going on all around us the way that it affects our marriages, the way that it affects the relationships with our children and parenting and finances, you name it. Satan, who I believe is real because the scriptures teach he is real, our enemy is there and he's making his play. It's really about influence. It's about influence in your heart and mine. And Jesus wants us as his disciples, his followers, to be a godly influence in the world and to those around us. And before we can be a light in the dark world, we have to do that work in our own hearts first. It's not about perfection or legalism, but a constant pursuit of Jesus. I want you to think for just a moment about something that you've seen that has been contaminated. Maybe you think of, you know, that bag of potatoes in your, in your, in your kitchen that's rotting and And it just smells terrible, but then you open up the bag and it has now affected all the other potatoes in the bag. And you open it up and the gnats come out, you know, it's just, it's gross. I share that from experience recently. Or maybe when you think of contamination, you think of a toddler who has taken a drink from your cup while eating their lunch. That cup's done. You should set it on fire. And if you are a parent who drinks after your small children, you need help. It's, you just, it's gross. That's contamination. That's just out of this world. Or maybe you think of water supplies that have been contaminated by factory chemicals over the years. The point is this. If something is contaminated, it's no good. We have to work so hard against that contamination in our lives. It's it's a heart level kind of issue. 
And that's why I want to spend time talking about it. If the salt has lost its taste in verse 13, it's a very important phrase. In the original language, what it means is, is it means to be foolish or to act in a foolish way. Would others say that you live a foolish life? Or that you've lost your taste as a Christian? Because it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In Bible times, it would just be thrown out on the ground and people would walk on it and it'd get rained on it, it'd get spread all over the place and this would affect the ground around it. Nothing would grow. Things would just be dead on the ground because it wasn't doing what it was intended to do. And so to be clear, this isn't to be misunderstood with people losing their salvation either. It's just useless to the one who holds it. You see, the salt didn't lose its, its identity. It's still salt. It just lost its, its, its effectiveness. And that should influence all of us this morning. The only way to be salty or to have this saltiness restored is through godliness. The preserving qualities of God's word in us should cause us to influence the world for good. If not, we're good for nothing. And it is to be trampled under feet. That's what Jesus is saying. So what's that mean? It means, it means if that's how we're living, then, then we're in trouble. That we should be a salty, preserving influence in the world, set apart from it as we walk in wisdom. If you read verse five and six together. We cannot adopt the ways of the world or the sinful parts of the culture into our lives. And no, I'm not just talking about music or clothing style or political positions. I'm talking about holiness being set apart as he was set apart. That if we lose our saltiness as Christians, as Christ followers, if we lose our saltiness as the church, we lose our purpose. And we have a purpose. And we should always be making an effort to affect the world, but we are worthless if we are not different from it. So Jesus talks about what our lives should look like as his disciples. And then he explains how this should affect our witness and our influence in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We are called to live in the likeness, in his likeness, and to carry the hope of the gospel to the world around us. And this is what a true disciple of Jesus Christ will do. It's like a city on a hill. We Christians should be shining our light. This world lives in darkness. We as Christians walk in light. So we live in the light. A city in Bible times was often built on elevated places. And so these lights on, from the city, then they, would, they would kind of be as a, kind of like a lighthouse that could be seen from a long way off. And that's the example. We are to shine like a lighthouse, like a beacon of truth and hope of light in a very, very dark world. And if we shine our light for his glory, Jesus says it cannot be hidden. Amen. Our light doesn't point to us. It doesn't point to a church. It doesn't point to a, a systematic. It points to a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And his gospel is for everyone. And we can only do this if we are in the light, if we are saved. 
And God gives us what we need to be salt and light. And this idea is obviously very important to him because he repeats it over and over again. John says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul will write in Philippians chapter two, he talks about obeying God and not grumbling. He says, do these things so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus continues in Matthew five, he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Is your light on? In the homes during Jesus' day, a lamp would be, it would always be in an elevated place, similar to how it is in our homes today. Normally, we don't put lamps on the floor. But you put them up so that they can be, they can be seen. And this is what the light of Christ does in our lives. Jesus is all the light that we need. And the people who don't know Jesus need to know that light. John would write again about Jesus in John 5. He says, he, Jesus, was a burning and shining lamp. In verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we shine our light, it shows who we follow. Now, we covered a lot of ground this morning, so I would encourage you to go back, maybe study this text on your own, but we did this because it's vital to the mission and the vision that Jesus has commissioned and commanded us to do. In our original verse in Colossians, Paul says that our speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. Gracious speech maximizes gospel influence. What we say should be gracious, but it should also have purpose. A Jesus-influenced, a Jesus-focused purpose. When we speak, we should be adding gospel value to the conversation. Our words, they should be hopeful, encouraging, and helpful. We should have a flavor we should have a taste about us. We should know how to answer every person who asks us about the hope that we have in and through and because of Jesus Christ. So what about you? What about us? Are we gracious in how we speak to people who don't know the Savior? You should write that question down. Am I gracious in how I speak to people who don't know Jesus as Savior? And if you're not, you should do something about it. And I pray that we as this local assembly, this local body, that we would be working toward that. That we would, uh, that our grace, that our speech would always be gracious because there's no excuse. 
Paul says there's no excuse. Our speech should always be gracious and it should be seasoned with salt because we're pursuing Jesus and we're living separated from this world because we are now in him. And that intentionality has been the whole purpose of this entire series. This entire series of build has been designed around that principle that the relationships that we have and the relationships that we are building with the seeking lost world, they matter. And they matter because people are valuable to God. And so that should translate into they are valuable to us as well. You see, Jesus makes all the difference. And if you look at your own story, you look at your own experience, you will find that Jesus has made all the difference for you. He's made all the difference for me. He made all the difference in my family lineage. Has he made a difference in yours? So what changes might you need to make in how you walk and how you talk with and to the outsiders in your life? Because gracious speech maximizes gospel influence. So I'm gonna give you just a moment like we did last week in the silence of the room to just reflect on this moment, this truth from Colossians 4. And I want you to ask that question of, am I gracious in how I am speaking to those who are far from God in my life? Am I walking in wisdom and am I speaking graciously? So you do that and then I'll close this out in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to gather together this morning to sing praises to your name, to declare how good you have been to us, and to thank you for that goodness. Lord, as we've studied your word this morning and the challenge that we have heard from Paul to, to walk in wisdom and to make the most use of the time that we have and to speak graciously to those around us. God, I pray that we would take that challenge and that we would apply it to our lives. That we would be a people who are busy about the work that you've called us to be about, but that we would do it with your kind heart and with gracious words. So Lord, help us to be a people about your work. Help us to be faithful to it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.